This sermon, Radical Truthfulness, was preached by Brett Overstreet on Sunday, July 4th, 2021 at Sovereign Grace Church. Morning, church. Say one more time, happy 4th of July. If you would open your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 5. If you are new with us or tune in for the first time, we have been, we have been studying the book of James, and this morning we have a uh, fairly short passage, just one verse in chapter 5, verse 12. So if I could ask you, please stand with me, and let's read our passage together. The most important words we will hear this morning are these words. James 5, chapter 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. You may be seated and pray with me. Oh, dear gracious Father, we are desperate this morning for you to help us receive with gladness and with joy and with meekness your word, your truth for us this morning. Lord, I am desperate for you to sustain me, to help me to be faithful to your word as we look at what James intends for these believers, what you intend for us this morning. So help us, we pray. We ask your spirit would be at work convicting, making the gospel message break through the hearts that are unsaved this morning. We ask this all for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to begin. I want to tell you about a man named George Fox. Perhaps you've heard of him. He's, he's most well known for living in the 17th century and being the founder of the Quakers. And this is less well known, but he's also credited for being the reason why we are no longer required to lay our hand on the Bible and swear an oath in the court of law. If you study a little bit about his life, there are many accounts of him and his followers just flat out saying, we will not swear by any oath. And George himself was imprisoned for refusing to do just that, to lay his hand on the Bible and swear an oath in the court of law. Fox believed, and he taught his followers, that the Bible prohibits you from taking any oaths of any kind. And when put on trial, he maintained that him and his followers were always truthful, And so their words should be enough for the courts. And so it's because of his courage to to stand up to the judges that we are no longer required to swear an oath on the Bible in the court of law. And while Fox's desire to obey God's word was admirable, he had an incorrect understanding of passages like James 5.12, and it led him to this unbiblical conviction that it was wrong to ever take an oath for any reason. But for everything he got wrong, he got something very right. He said our words should be enough. And this is the simple and yet serious truth or or point that James is making in our text. Think about what we've been learning in the book of James. James has been calling these Christians to live out their faith, submitted to God's word, to to be doers of the word, even in the midst of social conflict and and. And persecution, and he continues this morning with 
is telling us that our, our, our speech must be radically truthful. That's the big idea for us. If I could just give that to you in one sentence, it's this. In the midst of a deceitful world, God's church has been called to radical truthfulness. And as we unpack that, two points for us, a radical problem and a radical church. And so let's jump into our first point, a radical problem. Look again at your Bibles with me. Our text begins with this phrase, but above all, my brothers. James is clearly addressing believers here, right? And this phrase likely serves a twofold purpose in both transitioning us to the end of the letter, but also connecting James' point here back to his teachings on the tongue. If you remember, James has spent a generous portion of this letter addressing the Christian use of the tongue. Let me just refresh our memory real quick. James has exhorted us to be slow to speak, to bridle our tongue, to refrain from speaking evil to a brother. Of course, who could forget chapter 3, the the clinic that James gives as he, he reminds us the power of the tongue to bless and to curse. Even last week, we saw how the tongue can be used to to grumble in the midst of suffering. I heard someone say, James wants one last punch at the Christian tongue here. He draws our attention back to our tongues. Look at the text again. Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. Now, when James says, do not swear, he does not have profanity-laced speech on his mind here. He is concerned with believers taking an oath and invoking someone or something else to guarantee their word. We've heard this before. You've heard people say, listen, I I swear on my parents' grave. I swear swear on my life. I I swear to God that I did not do what you think I did. In, In all of those examples, you are invoking the name of someone or something else to prove your truthfulness and trustworthiness. That's the purpose of an oath, right? To declare your commitment to fulfill your word, and under no circumstances will you break that. And we see examples of this all over scripture. If you study the Old Testament, you will see passages like Deuteronomy 10.20 that encourages oaths. It says, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. Leviticus 19.12 warns us the dangers of breaking an oath. We see examples of oaths all throughout the Old and the New Testament. Go read the New Testament, Paul's letters. You will see him often swear by God. I think the most amazing example of this, or one of the most amazing examples, is found in Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, 17 says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose... He guaranteed it with an oath. Here is an example of God himself making an oath and giving us the very purpose of the oath to show the unwavering commitment to his promise. And so even just two minutes of a a quick Bible study, a quick look at other passages, it kind of seems like James is off his rocker, right? What, what, what is he doing here? Why is he prohibiting the use of oaths if, if oaths are used all throughout Scripture and even encouraged? Well, we can start with this. 
James is in pretty good company here. If, if, if these words sound familiar, it's because his brother, Jesus, taught the very same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at, look at Matthew 5, verse 34. It should be on the screen for you. Jesus says, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So are James and Jesus contradicting Scripture? Correct. Someone said no. That's correct. (laughs) In order to understand the meaning of our text this morning, we have to understand something that both Jesus and James are addressing when they said these words. This idea of taking an oath, it's a little antiquated for us, right? But but, but it, it turns out it had become a serious problem in New Testament times. What had happened was the use of oaths had become so perverted that they weren't even recognizable anymore. Some, even some church leaders, some, some religious leaders began to teach that if you swore an oath by someone other than God, then it wasn't truly binding. And so they could, they could swear on their beard, they could swear on, on, on the gold of the temple, but they wouldn't be required to fulfill it because they didn't invoke the name of God. Go read Matthew 23 this week. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for this very thing. And as it turns out, there's an entire section of the Mishnah, which was a small Jewish rule book that that went into great lengths about when an oath was binding, which one was binding and which one was not. One commentator I read said that there was a rabbi who taught if, if they swore by Jerusalem, then their oath was not binding. But if they swore toward Jerusalem, the oath was binding because somehow that invoked the name of God. Don't ask me why. He goes on to say, that this perversion of oaths produced moral schizophrenia. Essentially, oaths had become the the adult version of fingers crossed. Kids, everyone knows what that is, right? If you don't know what that is, go ask any 10-year-old, and they will tell you that when you cross your fingers and you tell a lie, then you aren't really telling a lie. Kids, that is not true. (laughs) But here's how it works. If your mom asks you, did you clean your room before you go play your friends, if If you stand with your hands or with your fingers crossed behind your back, then you can say yes, even if you did it, and you'll get away with it. It doesn't make any sense, right? It's moral schizophrenia. And so the problem was, this had broken into their everyday speech. People would would run around making oaths, making commitments, making promises with zero intention to keep them. Oaths and vows no longer carried the unbreakable bond to fulfill them. And so take a guess at what happened. People's integrity was sh- were shot. The, the, the trustworthiness of the word was gone. Oaths themselves, something we see used both in the New and Old Testament, were not the issue. It was how they were being used. Something that was meant to declare your commitment and reliability had been turned into a tool to deceive. The exact opposite of their purpose, right? Right? And so understanding the context that they are are saying this helps us understand why James is prohibiting oaths. James is attacking a radical problem here. And now formal oaths and vows might not be a part of our everyday speech, but 
If we're honest, it's not that different today, right? Deceit, half-truths, broken vows, lack of integrity, lack of, of, of trustworthiness. It's everywhere around us. Uh, this is the latest statistics I could find, but in America, nearly 50% of all American couples end up divorced. Over 115 studies in 2020 led to the following statistics. Every 13 seconds, there is a divorce in the United States. By the time I'm done preaching this 40-minute sermon, that's 180 divorces. During the time it takes for a couple to recite their wedding vows, two minutes, nine couples will legally put an end to theirs. At the end of this hour and a half service, 415 couples will get divorced. In my opinion, the far more alarming fact is that the divorce rates among regular church attenders has doubled since 1972. So much for marriage vows. Look at the deception of our politicians and mainstream media who regularly deal in untruth just to get a vote or a click. Perhaps you've been on the wrong end of a business deal gone bad or, or, or fallen victim to an online scam. We could go on and on. The problem is all around us. Our world has, has, has completely redefined what truth is. Nowadays, there's this term, I'm sure you've heard it, my truth which is an oxymoron if I've ever heard it. Men can be women, women can be men. Anyone can marry anyone, and as long as it is hidden under the veil of my truth, then you have to accept it, church. It is moral schizophrenia. And it is real. And it is out there. But here's what our text really shows us. The problem is not out there. The problem is in here. James is not writing this to these believers because the problem is simply out in the world around them. He writes to them because the problem is in our sinful hearts, right? If we just took a moment and got brutally honest with one another, how often are we less than truthful in our speech? How often have we, have we tweaked a few details of a story to make ourselves look a little bit better? How often have we promised to do something with little intent to keep that promise? How often have we been deceptive or misleading with our words to get a little more of what we want? The problem is not out there. The problem is in here. And listen, We've heard this all throughout the study of the book of James. Our words matter. Our words matter because our tongue is tied to our hearts. And in a very revealing way, our tongue exposes what's in our hearts. Quoting Romans 3.13, Kent Hughes says in his commentary, we are in a crisis of truth. He writes this, the main reason there is a crisis in truth is that we are, in fact, congenital liars. Right in the middle of the string of depravity in Romans 3, we read, they used their tongues to deceive. Our untruthfulness reveals our condition. 
No one has to teach us how to lie. If crisis of truth doesn't summarize our culture today, I don't know what does. But the reality is this. The crisis of truth did not begin in the 21st century. The crisis of truth did not begin when James wrote this letter. Church, it began in the garden when mankind exchanged truth for a lie. And ever since then, we have been congenital liars. The history of all of mankind is that we are oath breakers, not oath keepers. And beginning with me, no one in this room can say otherwise on their own. If you read the Bible, the history of God's own people is that we are oath breakers. Time and time again, we have, we have broken our oaths before God. And our sinful tendency to, to, to deal in untruth and dishonesty in our speech is such a radical problem that James and Jesus say, you know what, don't use oaths. I think if we, if we step back, church, this is a sobering text. Jesus might not be mentioned in it, but our need for him is on full display. Our sin reveals our desperate need for truth. Our, our, our sin reveals our desperate need for Jesus, who, by the way, is the way and the truth and the life. Scripture is abundantly clear about something. From the moment we are conceived, we are born into sin. We have to be taught how to eat. We have to be taught how to read. We have to be taught how to write. We're teaching my six-month-old how to roll over. No one has to teach us how to sin. And church, our sin is serious, isn't it? It has created a division between us and God. And there is no oath you can make, no promise or vow you can keep that could bring about the forgiveness that we require. But listen, there is one that we must talk about this morning. The one the great apostle Peter talks about in 1 Peter 2.22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Spoiler alert, he's not talking about any of us. No, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus, who, who walked this earth for 33 years, and never once did he sin. Never once was he untruthful or misleading or deceptive in his speech. His yes was always yes, and his no was always no. Listen, it is difficult for us to go 33 minutes, right, without allowing some deceit in our words. Jesus spoke only truth. For 33 years. Peter goes on to say that Jesus would bear our sins on the cross. Amen. So think, all those, all those little white lies, all those half-truths, all those misleading comments, every sin that you ever committed and ever will commit was placed on Jesus 2,000 years ago as he was nailed to a cross of wood. And go read 1 Peter 2. He goes on to say, by his wounds you have been healed. Amen. Do you know what that means? Forgiveness. 
God promises forgiveness for those that trust in Jesus' church. We might be oath breakers, but we serve a God who is an oath keeper. And if he has promised us forgiveness, then nothing can take that away. Listen, if we want to talk about radical, here's the most radical thing that we see today. Despite our hell-bent pursuit of sin, God offers us forgiveness and salvation. But here is the radical part. It is not about our commitment to do everything we said that we will do. It's not about about working harder to right all of your wrongs. No, salvation is about coming to a God who has done everything he said he will do in his son Christ. If you do not know Jesus this morning, the answer is not found in your faithfulness. The answer is not found in your ability to change your life around. It's not found in in your ability to just, just commit to doing better. Forgiveness and salvation is found in the completed work of Christ Jesus, who spoke with radical truthfulness from that cross. It is finished. The work is already done. God has done what he said he would do. So come to Jesus this morning. He is the perfect oath keeper, and he will be all that you need. For all of us, the the only solution to our radical problem of sin is Jesus. And for those who have been granted forgiveness, James now calls us to be radical. That is our second point this morning, a radical church. We've seen at the time of this writing, oaths and vows, they have been, been used as a tool to deceive. And again, if we're honest, it's no different today. And now we see James calling on the church to be counter-cultural. He prohibits the use of oaths in everyday speech and then look at the text. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. In his commentary on James, Douglas Moo, I love this, just gets us straight to the point of what James means by this. Here's what he writes. Our truthfulness should be so consistent and dependable that we need no oath to support it. A simple yes or no should suffice. Our mere word should be as utterly trustworthy as a signed document, legally correct and complete. And so let's resist the urge to overcomplicate what is being said here. As believers, there should be a radical truthfulness and trustworthiness in our words. The world has a saying for this. Say what you mean and mean what you say. George Fox would say, our words should be enough. James and Jesus say it the best. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Church, this is a call for us to be radically different than the world. The world may operate under a cloud of deceit and lies. It may have no regard for the truth, but it must not be so for the people of God. There is a far-reaching problem in the church today. 
There are far too many leaders, far too many church members who claim to have received the truth, to love the truth, to live for the truth, and yet they promote lies, they live in a cloud of deceit, they look no different than the world. And James is saying, no, no, no. That must not be so for the people of God. Kent Hughes writes, we are called to profound truthfulness in a radically deceptive world. That is the point James is making for us this morning. The church has a radical call for radical truthfulness in a radically deceptive world. The heart of our text is not that we should refrain from marriage vows or taking an oath in the court of law. The heart of our text is simple. Our words should be radically truthful. And so, I want to turn the corner kind of hard here and spend the rest of our time this morning just helping us get very practical and seek to understand how this applies to our life. Like, what, like, like much of what James is writing, we heard this earlier, this is very boots on the ground. This is, this is very practical to be lived out in our lives. And so if we want to be doers of the word, then we must ask, what does it mean for our speech to be radically truthful? And if you're like me, it is easy to read this and just think, I'm doing okay. I am not out there telling bold-faced lies. I am not fudging the numbers on my tax returns. I'm doing okay. You know, James, let's move on to whatever's next, right? No. The reality is if we're honest, too often our speech is filled with untruth, isn't it? There are many ways we do this throughout the day. I, I just I want to help keep it simple. Give us two categories to consider to, to help us leave here and think about how we apply this truth in the rest of our life. And the first category is this. Engaging with one another as we engage with one another. This relational context was certainly on James' mind when he echoes these words of Jesus. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Think about our speech. Our speech is the primary way we communicate with one another, right? If our speech is untruthful, then it is going to have effects on our relationships. And there's plenty of dramatic examples of this. A husband or wife is caught lying about aspects of their marriage. A teenager is lying about who they're spending time with and what they're doing with their time. A coworker being dishonest about a project because they're afraid of the boss. All of these can, can have serious consequences on the relationship, right? And certainly, James in this text and the rest of Scripture addresses those things. But what about the more subtle, seemingly harmless ways that we do this? I, I think the real danger here is in the subtleness of this sin. And so let, 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 let's look at a couple examples. What about the trustworthiness of your word? When our text says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, that tells us that we should do what we say we are going to do. Our feet should follow our mouths. 
If you say that you will do something, do it, right? Let your words be radically trustworthy. When you tell your community group, I am committed, I will be there, be there. When you tell your ministry team that you are excited to serve and you will be there, be there. Be there on time. When someone asks you to help them move, to watch their kids, to help with the project, to run numbers, and you say you will do it, do it. This is complicated application, isn't it? Here's one I was convicted of this week. When you say you will pray for someone, pray for them. How easy is it to interact with someone and they've just poured out a situation, I'll be praying for you, man, and then we never pray for them. Or we get a text from a brother or from the community group, and I mean, I, sometimes I'm autopilot. I'll be praying for you. When we do that, are we committed to doing what we said we will do? When I tell someone that I will be praying for them, I, I, I want my words to be so trustworthy that you know my brother will be praying for me. We make these types of commitments with our mouths all day long, don't we? How often are we intent to keep those? I think if we rightly understood a text like James 5.12, we would have a fierce ambition for the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of our speech. And listen, James is not ignorant of real life here. He's not saying that if if your car breaks down on the way to community group and you said you'd be there, you're in sin. No, remember, he is addressing a problem with oaths because they had become a tool used to deceive. James is not concerned with honest mistakes here. He is concerned with deceit in our hearts. And so the point is not that accidents can never happen. The point is that we should be so radically committed to truthfulness that our word is free of deception and seen as completely trustworthy to those around us. We should not need an oath or a contract or to make a vow for people to know that we are reliable. Our word should be enough. Here's another example. How often do we tell stories, leave out little details, maybe manipulate the facts to make us look better? How often do we withhold information that's important from our boss so that we don't get reprimanded? How often do we tell our parents the half-truth so they don't know the whole truth? How often do we tell our boss we're sick just to take a day off? How often do we exaggerate the facts to make a school assignment get better? How often do we lie to our kids just to get them off our back because we need five minutes? Personal example from my life this week. My, 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 my wife and I are, are thinking through some financial decisions and as I'm on the phone with, with banks and financial institutions, I was so aware how easy it was to just mislead a little bit, manipulate the facts a little bit just to make us look a little better, just to help us get a little more of what we wanted. It is so easy, church. It is so subtle. And it almost always seems harmless. But it's not. It's deceptive. It 
It's dishonest. It's sinful. We could go on and on and on with the ways we allow this to creep into our day. So let, let me just say, what is it for you? Where do you tolerate deception in your speech? Second category is engaging with our culture. I was just very, very, very aware this week that it is not easy to be a truthful person in today's age. We live in a world that has been radically affected by sin, and there are few places that it is more evident than this world's absolute disdain and disregard for the truth. And so if we have been called to radical truthfulness, then inevitably we will collide with the untruthfulness of the world. And when that happens, our call to be radically truthful does not change. So, you know, when you are faced with that situation at the water cooler or at school or at the dinner table around holidays with extended family in, and they ask you about your thoughts on transgenderism or homosexuality, what do you say? Do you simply shrug it off, give the appearance of, of being indifferent and agreeing with them? This is not a call to sit on a fence, church. It might seem like the smart thing to do to keep your reputation, to keep your job, but church, it is deceptive. It is untruthful. I had a conversation uh, two weeks ago with, with an unbelieving uh, friend, and, and we were talking about we just both had children, so we were talking about disciplining, disciplining with the rod. And I will be honest, there were moments in that conversation that I really wanted to sugarcoat what we think the biblical command is about giving the rod. Because I didn't want to be seen as a lunatic. I didn't want to be seen as old-fashioned. I didn't want to be seen as a crazy person. I didn't want someone knocking on my door asking me why I'm giving my son the rod. But it is in these moments, church, we have an opportunity to speak truth. Not, not a truth, not my truth, but the truth of God's word. By the way, to a world that desperately needs to hear truth. So the intent here is not for us to run around looking for every moment to shout our, our convictions with a megaphone out in public. But when we are presented with an opportunity to speak the truth, we must speak truth boldly. And here's the reality. This is not easy, is it? The call for us to be radically truthful is costly. It's inconvenient. Oftentimes it's difficult. Oftentimes it's, it's risky. There's many other examples we can look at, but... But even in just these few, there's a potential cost with each of them, isn't there? And so do not buy the lie that it is somehow better for you to keep your reputation. It is somehow better for you to, to keep yourself in the running for that promotion. It is somehow better to, to save face or to keep your job. Do not buy the lie that somehow it is worth compromising the truthfulness of your speech. And my intent is not for everyone to go lose their jobs tomorrow. My intent 
is for us to see that God offers us something far, far better. He offers us his son, who is the truth, and who lived and died so that we might live radically for him. And he himself tells us, it will be costly, but it will be worth it. Maybe you can think of more examples in your life, but there's many other we could go through. I, I, I think there's a, one thing we need to pay attention to before we move on. I think there's a root sin here that is, is, is too often a part of this conversation. Ask yourself why we are so quick to disregard truthfulness. I think that a big reason why is fear of man. I think often it, it is because we care far too deeply with how others view us, don't we? Our ambition for the respect of the opinion of others has to be one of our greatest pitfalls in this area. It is so easy to care so deeply about how others view us that we completely disregard the fear of the Lord, don't we? And I think when we realize that, we realize that this is serious, church. The deceit in our speech, the half-truths, the little white lies, this, this is serious. And so before we close, I, I want to tell us one more story just to help us see the seriousness of all this. Don't turn there, but in Acts 5, go read it sometime this week, we see a husband and wife named Ananias and Sapphira, and they were part of the early church. They sold a piece of property to give the money to the church community, but they conspired to keep some of the money back for themselves. And so, I know these numbers are ridiculous in early church, but just to give us an example, if they sold the church for $100,000, they might have told the church they sold it for $90,000 so they could keep the profit but still look good, right? And Peter, if you know the story, he calls him out, doesn't he? He asks them, why did you lie? He says, why did you lie to the Spirit? Why did you lie to God? And it's interesting. Well, the important part is they then drop dead, right? And it's interesting because they had done a very noble thing. They had sold a piece of property and given a, a bunch of money to the, to the early church. I mean, what an amazing expression of generosity and commitment, right? But what do we see in Acts 5? There is deceit in their hearts. And Peter says it is worse than lying to the church. They lied to God. And God struck them down. This story is incredibly revealing for us as we read James 5.12. The story about Ananias and Sapphira is ultimately about God's holiness. God's holiness means that he is, he is set apart. He is transcendent. He is, he's perfectly pure. And throughout redemptive history, what has God done? He has called out his people and he's, he's set them apart to be his chosen people, right? Think, think back to God calling the Israelites out of Egypt. He gives them laws and commandments to set them apart as his own. And what does he tell them in Leviticus eleven forty four? Be holy, for I am holy. In Acts 5, we see the same thing. God has just established his church, 
purchased and made new by the blood of Christ. He has set his church apart as his chosen people. Brothers and sisters, he has set you apart as his own. But here is the deal. God did not send his only son to the cross to redeem his church so we could go live like the world. No, God redeemed us so that we could live for him, so that we could live like Christ. He redeemed us so that we could be radically truthful before him. Why? Because he is holy. That's been one of the main points of James, right? We are called to holiness. The story in Acts 5 shows us just how serious God takes this issue, just how serious God takes truthfulness. God's holiness demands radical truthfulness. This is why when faced with the holiness of God, what was the great prophet Isaiah very aware of? I am a man of unclean lips. Brothers and sisters, God will not be mocked. He has saved us. He has called us. He has has set us apart to be his church. Do not get lost in all of the practical stuff this morning. That's good. That's important. But do not get lost. There is so much more at stake here. We are called to be a radical church. Not to prove something about ourselves. Not to keep or earn the favor of God. But because, like we see time and time again in God's word, be holy, for God is holy. So, as we consider the truthfulness of our speech, I hope we feel the weight of what we see in Acts 5 this morning. But I hope we don't feel the weight of condemnation. Because did you notice what what James goes on to say? He ends with, that you may not fall under condemnation. How easy would it be for these struggling believers, how easy is it for us to fall under condemnation? We, we, we've, all, we've all experienced this before, right? We, we leave that moment, we leave that situation, and we realize we were deceptive with our words, we spoke untruth, we spoke half-truth, and we feel, we feel the weight of our sin, don't we? We realize we've been unfaithful before God and we, we feel its effects. But oftentimes, we feel condemnation rather than conviction, which leads to repentance, right? Condemnation is a real struggle for believers. Listen, God is a holy God, but He's also a God of grace. And not only has he provided the grace of forgiveness through his son, he offers the grace of repentance. The grace to to draw near to God through Christ. To confess that we have fallen way short and we could never live up on our own to the requirements of his holiness. And that like we heard this morning in pre-service prayer, we are desperate. We are desperate for him but it doesn't end there. We are called to go and live radically truthful. This week, today, none of us will be perfect, right? All of us will allow, will sinfully tolerate deceit in our speech. 
but the perfect righteousness of Christ will plead on your behalf. That is the hope for us, church, right? That is our only hope. But the good news is it is a radical hope. It is an eternal hope. So as we leave here, let your application be this. Pick one area of your life where you need to grow in implying radical truthfulness. Ask ask God to expose the deceit, the lies you've allowed to creep in, but do not fall under condemnation. Run to Jesus, repent, and turn to the truth of his word. Church, we have a radical hope for our radical problem, don't we? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you that you have called us, you have saved us, you have set us apart to be your people. Lord, we are, we are a people of unclean lips. Lord, there is, there is deceit in our mouths. There is a radical problem of sin that taints each one of us. Oh, but thank you that Christ and Christ's work is so much greater. Thank you that we look to the perfect oath keeper. Thank you that we have the perfect oath keeper. And so, Lord, help us, we pray, to live for you, to be radically truthful in our speech because you have saved us. You have made us new. You've not called us to to go back to the ways of the world. You have called us to follow you. And we serve a God of truth. We love you, Lord. We pray that you would help us grow. Give us humility and meekness as we pursue repentance, as we pursue change. Give us grace, we pray. Amen.